You're listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Strap yourself in for this one. Jeremy Connell Waite, he has had a fascinating background and a fascinating career. He's the global communications designer for IBM. He's behind IBM's 140,000 plus workforce and, may I add, Nobel Prize winners, inspiring them to be and do more. This is just a tour de force conversation with someone who's just so curious and obsessed with how the best get better. We talk about everything from storytelling, uh, effective communications, ikigai, and how IBM continue to be what he calls a 110-year startup. There's a perception of them being quite traditional and, and slow moving, and that is just very, very far from the truth. He's just a person that you just want to keep inviting back to your dinner parties time and time again. Uh, I could have spoken to him all day. If you are interested in anything to do with storytelling and communication, then strap yourself in because you're not going to want to miss this one. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Jeremy Connell Waite. My name is Nathan Anibaba and this is Agency Dealmasters. Agency Dealmasters is a series of conversations with world-class agency leaders building great agency businesses. I believe everyone belongs in the growth journey, and this show is dedicated to the stories and the lessons of ambitious agency builders of all types by examining their history, competitive advantage, and what makes them tick. Now, let's jump in. My extra special guest this week is Jeremy Connell Waite, the global communications designer for IBM, a commercial storyteller, speechwriter, and executive performance coach. He helps tell stories that matter. Jeremy serves IBM's global community of over 140,000 partners and technology consultants. He uses the art of neuroscience and communications thinking to build compelling narratives for his clients around hybrid cloud, AI, blockchain, and quantum computing. He has a string of notable achievements and accolades, including being voted as the number one most influential person on Twitter for big data by Analytica, top 100 digital marketer globally by Digital Scout, top 10 most influential tech professionals by B2B Magazine, as well as many, many more. Jeremy Connellway, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Nice. Absolute pleasure. That was a bit of a mouthful. Um, I want to work for that guy. <laughs> like this. I hate rankings, as you know, but no, it's a pleasure to be here. This is going to be fun. You've got a lot to live up to with that intro. This chat can go in so many different directions. Impressive CV from Facebook, Adobe, Salesforce, IBM. You've been an agency owner, an author, you're a podcaster. You've also spent time as a giraffe keeper, which we have to get into at some point. But you started your career in printing, of all places. How do you go from there to becoming global communications lead for IBM? Family business. I mean, I was lazy. You know, I kind of fell into the, the family business. I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I remember just growing up looking at Gordon Gecko and Wall Street. I was one of my favorite movies. I'm like, I want to be that guy. <laughs> like in Salford, I lived in a pretty dodgy part of Manchester and would go to the news agents, you know, 13, 14 years old to buy the Financial Times. They had to order it in because it was not the type of news agents that would <laughs> stop the FT. And you could see them like, who is this guy? <laughs> Who's and this I was for? just I was just hoping that by osmosis, I'm trying to 
you know, I'm trying to think my way into that world and maybe one day I'll be a stockbroker and I can have red braces. Um, so I had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, all of my family have, have worked for themselves. You know, they've run and owned various kind of medium and large businesses. And I was always impressed with that, but kind of frustrated that they were also slightly pissed off every now and again that they didn't, some of them didn't enjoy their jobs, like bitching and moaning about, well, this happened and that employee and this customer. And I was like, you own the business. You own the company. If you don't like it, we should be, you know, you should be able to change it. So I had right. this kind of weird understanding of, well, I want to be an entrepreneur, but is that everything that goes with running your own company with all of the baggage and the nonsense and all of that stuff that goes with it? Anyway, I ended up kind of having many conversations with my dad and he was like, well, come on, you come and work for me then and let's see how we can do it. So we tried. I was a partner in his company. I was there about 10 years, a huge amount of fun. Um, working with families, obviously difficult, um, but brilliant at the same time. It's just a real mix of stuff. And then it kind of got to the point that I want to give this a go on my own. So I set up a couple of companies, um, three agencies. We grew quite fast. I took investment on one of them. It grew very fast and had multiple locations and then failed spectacularly through a very long story that we won't go into now, but there's a, a business partner, some bad, this, this is in a run up to 2008. So it's mm. easy to look at that moment and go, oh, you know, the economic crisis, everything was difficult. We just made some bad decisions. My business partner went away to do something else. I thought I was in a dragon's den type situation when this influential investor was putting a sack of money in. And then when he wasn't there to do a lot of the financial and the operational stuff that I didn't want to do, then I struggled. So after that bankruptcy, um, I ended up meeting my wife, who's just amazing and absolutely rescued me. And she gave me a job um, opportunity that she saw at Phones for You. Hmm. You remember the old phones company? I do. Yeah. I ended up doing bad things and, and really imploding. That went south pretty quick. But when I was there, we were doing amazing stuff. And we grew one of the biggest social media presences in Europe. And I took a lot of the credit for that. But that job back then, we had no idea because this is the early days of social media, right? So there wasn't even job descriptions for a head of social. So I ended up trying to leverage part of my agency background and the stuff that I loved about people and numbers, like from Gordon Gecko to my agency land. Right. And then kind of talked my way into that job. And then almost by accident, which had a lot to do with just the explosion of the social web commercially anyway, had a lot of success because I had a phenomenal amount of freedom to do things as long as they weren't illegal. We wanted to make some noise because it was a very provocative Paddy Power type brand, right? Sure. And, um, and just the success of that ended up taking me to Facebook, Adobe, Salesforce, and then where I am at IBM. So it's been the weirdest trajectory that I didn't expect at all. But actually, if I go back piece by piece, it's very logical. But, you know, people like Helen Tupper and Sarah Ellis and the girls that I see on LinkedIn doing amazing jobs talking about squiggly careers. I'm like, that's what this is. I'm an example of a squiggly career. You are the <laughs> definition. They should have you on their podcast. You, oh. you should be the face of their show, to be but honest. They're amazing. I love their work. And you coach you, they've got a new book out. But yeah, I absolutely buy into all of that. So what's the red thread that ties everything together then in your career? And how did you think about piecing it all to, together to arrive at where you are today? Because it's a very clear 
you know, you've, you, you've got a very, you know, clear blue ocean, you know, sort of, sort of strategy. You've made a, a really clear path for yourself. Was it always that clear looking back that this is where you would eventually end up? Um, I'd like to think so. And um, I'd like to pretend that I also read the book that's just behind you on Blue Ocean Strategy, because it sounds like there was a very sensible plan about this is where I meant to go and this is how it all manifested and it was amazing. But absolutely not. I mean, it, through many times, it just felt like a car crash and this accidental thing of kind of fumbling around in the dark and stumbling into the occasional success. But most of the time, and even now, working for the company I work for, some days feel like 20 steps forward and 19 back. I mean, most of us in work, and especially in agency land, feel like that a lot of the time anyway. But you've got to be resilient and keep going forward, and you've got to look at the progress and not focus on the negatives and the bad stuff. You know, we are making a difference and moving forward. But for me, it just comes down to, look, I love people and I love numbers. And that's it. That's the one common thread from when I was 13 in Salford, having no idea what I was reading in the Financial Times, but wanting to live in a world where we could make a lot of money. And the more money we make, the more we might be able to give away. We might be able to make a difference, influence and persuade people and trying to use numbers to try and understand, well, why do people do the things that they do? So I kind of fell into this kind of convergence almost of neuroscience and data and analytics with kind of humanities and anthropology and sociology and kind of the psychology of why people do what they do. Social media was beautiful for me because that all happened at the same time when you needed both. Previously, you could argue it was one or the other. We talk about T-shaped people. So I kind of ended up figuring out how to leverage both in a way that, you know, creative people mean to be more numerically savvy and some of the more scientific tech people need to be a lot more creative. I always thought that I lived in the middle of that intersection, but was mostly around peg in a square hole. <laughs> and, you know, having found that squiggly career in roles where they wanted around peg in a square holes, which is why most of my job titles have been unconventionally evangelist. No one has a clue what an evangelist does. <laughs> you know, what really you just talk, are you doing TV, you're doing books, like how do you measure your economic impact? How much do we pay you? Are you worth this? Are you worth that? Well, you know, you see evangelists that are earning, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions. You see other people calling themselves evangelists that, are, you know, can't scrape a couple of quid together. So it's very unusual, but that Silicon Valley West Coast mindset is what's always kind of that's always drawn me into that kind of explosive growth mindset where humanity and technology collide. I know you're a huge fan of West Wing. I am as well. Phenomenal show. Love the writing, really fast paced, all the rest of it. How did the West Wing and Sam Seaborn in particular shape what you're doing today? This is funny and it's kind of embarrassing though as well, right? When you look at what shapes you. <laughs> And also, maybe we'll talk a little bit about, you know, kind of guy in personal life and professional mm. life and how you get them to converge. But at the time, I just loved the show. I was a big fan of The West Wing. Still am. In fact, I'm watching it again at the moment. I love Aaron Sorkin. I love the way that he writes uh, from A Few Good Men to Jobs. I love the way he talks about intention and obstacle. Love A Few Good Men. The opening of the newsroom, Studio 60. He's just one of my favorite writers anyway. But... I remember watching that pilot 
And I think it was Sam Seaborn, you know, played by Rob Lowe. And he was talking about, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just trying to keep up. You know, it's like we get 30 minutes of work done where we're making a difference and the rest of the day is just trying to keep up. But I loved the energy of being in a place that looked like it moved really fast. Of course, it looks really glamorous because it's TV, but it never is when you're actually there. But that intersection of... Um, he's a communications director and a policy advisor. So he's a lot like Ben Rhodes was for Obama, or if you want to go right back, Ted Sorensen. Um, I was thinking whether or not Alistair Campbell in the UK would be a similar type of role, but I'm not so sure. <laughs> but somebody who is like part speechwriter, part communications, right? Advisor of how do we communicate this to the world and make sense of it, but actually also getting your hands dirty on policy and trying to understand the complexity of why certain things happen. You don't find that much in government these days because there's so many people with individual roles. Whereas, you know, two decades ago, you often had like one person, especially in the 60s, one person responsible for everything, like Ted Sorensen for JFK. He's negotiating the Cuban Missile Crisis while he's over here writing the moon speech. And I'm like, that's the kind of job I want. I want to be getting my hands dirty on stuff that matters and then helping people to tell really cool stories and communicate in a better way. Yeah, so kind of thoughts become things, right? I just fell into it. There's almost some spiritual law of attraction maybe going on. I'm sure some life coach would have a field day with that. We will come back to that in in a moment, law of attraction and, and ikigai and all the rest of it. But your commercial, you're the commercial storyteller, speechwriter, and executive performance coach for IBM, as you mentioned. What does that role entail? Tell us a little bit more about the role, what you're responsible for, and some of the more interesting parts of the job. We're a really unusual business to start with, and we're I, I jokingly call us a 111 year old startup. You know, founded in 1911. And there's a lot of baggage, good and bad, that goes with being a 111-year-old startup. But what you end up with is a company that has the potential to genuinely change the way the world works. There's very few companies in the world that can actually hand on heart say that and have the chops to be able to do it. A lot of what we do is behind the scenes. So there's many things and systems that IBM runs around the world, public sector, government, you know, industry, where... The world relies on IBM systems. You know, there's parts of countries that would fall over genuinely if it wasn't for some of our systems. And trying to tell those stories, whether that's to attract new talent, whether or not it's to help sell a deal, whether or not it's to explain a new process that we've just invented, that's the thing that's the most exciting. So I, half of my job is really communications, back to Sam Seaborn, and that might be speech writing. It might be keynotes, it could be videos, it could be creating assets that are publicly facing. Um, it could be executives that are going to be stood on a big stage somewhere. And then half of it is internal. So the coaching work that I do is with some of the other superstar performers of IBM, the high performers who either need to build their brand, their profile, communicate better. It's no different than a really great high-performance athlete. You know, you look at a Lewis Hamilton, a Michael Jordan, you know, Nadal, they've all, Serena Williams, they've all got their own performance coaches. You know, like when you've got the best in the world and you need to make them a few percent better, when it comes to communications, that's what I love to do, trying to help the best people in the world communicate just a 
tiny, tiny bit better. And parts of that involves mentoring and trying to inspire the next generation of folks coming through. But it's really fun when you're working with research scientists, for example. You know, we got 3,000 research scientists at IBM, and we put billions into research to invent stuff that doesn't exist yet, whether it's quantum computing, whether it's, you know, understanding different methods for carbon molecules to try and solve for parts of the climate crisis. And there's like six Nobel Prize winners that have come out of that team. And when you speak to them, these are, these are quantum physicists that are also like world-class tango dancers, you know? So it's like, well, hold on. How does that work? Right. And you're like, no, seriously, because if you've got a brain that not only is so big that you've got to solve for some things that have never been done before, you start looking at, well, how'd you do that? And you realize what makes those really smart people tick is because they found a way to unlock the extreme right-hand part of their brain as well. So I find myself working with researchers and scientists and technical architects who have got these sometimes really obscure passions on the far right as well in terms of, you know, painting, poetry, ballet, tango, because it's like, well, you need a left brain and a right brain because you have to creatively think of things that other people haven't. And you find these really weird blends of people that are just fascinating to work with. We call them wild ducks. <laughs> The IBM, the people who think differently, slightly more, more mavericks, you know, restless explorers looking for new angles on big problems. And um, I really like that. So how do you make these already high performers 1% better or even marginally better? I mean, these are really, as you said, they're high performers already. They're type A personalities. They're amazingly driven. How do you step in and make them 1% better? What's your approach? I think some of it, I mean, it's not like, I mean, who am I? I'm just kind of a, a lowly communications guy at IBM, but it's almost like some people need a nod or permission or encouragement just to bring more of themselves into the boardroom, for example. Let's keep it, if you're thinking about the professional world. And sometimes it's like, well, I'm giving this really detailed, highly technical presentation about cloud. And, you know, migrating cloud systems and architecture and looking at trying to transform the infrastructure of a large organization that's going to impact many people. It's got implications for the future and customers and growth or not, if you get it wrong. And you start looking at a lot of that stuff and it starts to get really messy really quickly. So it's like, well, we've got to keep it smart. We've got to keep it serious. We've got all of our slides full of numbers. And it's like, no, people connect with people. You know, I mean, this is, you and I, we get this, right? We're all storytellers. Marketing's done this really well for years, human-based stories. And in the technical world, and a lot of the time in the boardroom, we forget that, that no, humans are storytelling animals. You know, you tell stories, you trigger hormones like endorphins and oxytocin and dopamine, all the things that keep you wanting more of a good story. But also, those are the things that drive relationships, that build trust and love and generosity and bonding and relationships are rooted in the right-hand part of the brain or the limbic system, right? The amygdala. And that comes from sharing personal stories, bringing more of yourself to work, personal anecdotes, talking about your twins, talking about the thing that you really love, whether that's sports or whatever. So I often see that when people start to bring more of themselves into the way they communicate, all of a sudden something changes because now you're the only person in the world that can give that talk. It's not just, here's an amazing script, please go and make it your own 
and deliver it with passion and emotion. It's like, well, great, anyone can do that. That's just performance. That's, that's an actor. When you're looking at high performers in a boardroom, I'm looking at like, how can we make sure that you're the only person in the world that could tell that story? And also so that they want to work with you. You know, we've got about 220,000 employees at IBM, 140,000 are consultants. Those are people selling themselves indirectly, or sometimes directly. So how do you do that? Like, why would I buy you? It's like, why would you buy this agency instead of that agency? You look at language and persuasion and rhetoric and the stories that you tell. I like them. I don't like them. Why? Uh, I don't know. Some of those decisions are irrational. They don't go against, they don't follow the data. People make irrational decisions about who to work with, who to trust, who to believe. Mm. When you go for a big holiday, a big car, who to sleep with, you know, a lot of the big decisions in life are irrational. And in business, we pretend that they're data-driven and they're not. So that's where I like to try and come in and encourage, like, let's have a little bit more of... Brené Brown put it really well in her first TED Talk that she was terrified when she gave that talk about the power of vulnerability. Storytelling is just data with a soul. That's it. We've got enough data. We need a bit more soul. Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Bridge, the growth-focused podcast agency. We help ambitious agencies talk to the right brands through the power of podcasting. Generate leads, win new business, and increase reputation. Check out our clients' podcasts and find more resources to keep learning at bridgegrowth.org. Now, back to the show. So I'm rereading Sapiens at the moment, Nouvelle Harari. And um, obviously, as we know, he talks about the reason why we are the way we are now with where the dominant, you know, species um, on the planet is because we were able to understand and share shared stories, share, you know, common stories. There were multiple types of humans around 150,000 years ago, but the reason why Homo sapiens were the ones that dominated is, is because we were able to believe in shared stories and communicate with this group of human beings over there that we had no idea even existed, but now that we know who they are, we can communicate with them because we understand the shared story. So stories are really fundamental to who we are. I heard Salman Rushdie put it really well once, mm. you know, the author Salman Rushdie, and he says it's a little bit like Maslow. Sure. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we have all the basics we've got to take care of. And, and I heard him say once, look, from the moment you're born, you've got a one month old, right? This will resonate. Um, from the moment we're born to the moment we die, there's only a few things that we need. We need warmth, we need safety, and we need nutrition, nourishment. So we want some food, keep me safe, keep me warm. For the most part, that's all humans need. Now, you can unpack that in various different ways, but generally falls under those three headings. And once those are taken care of as humans, it's like, I want connection. Mm. I want a story. Tell me a story. Now, whether you're 70 or seven or seven weeks old, you know, it's going to boil back down to that. And I don't think that ever changes, you know, in our jobs, the way we're born, the way we communicate with each other. You know, we are storytelling creatures. We are, someone said the other day to me, humans are um, meaning seeking machines. So it was like, we seek meaning in everything. You know, we want a mm. purpose and a why. But we need stories mm. to make us tick. Mm. Couldn't agree more. 
in our pre-interview, you talked about Brendan Bouchard. I checked him out, ordered his book. It, he looks phenomenal, by the way. Uh, he's got a book, his recent book is High Performance Habits. Why has his work struck such a strong chord with you? I'm naturally suspicious. This, this is an interesting one because I, I don't like the word coach very much. I sometimes get called it because of the work that I do. But I think of coaches and I think of Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho or Phil Jackson, you know, or John Wooden or something. These, I mean, those are coaches. And when I look at coaches in the business world, I think of all of the people, like Tony Robbins springs to mind straight away. I had the privilege of of working with him a little bit at Salesforce and followed it. But then you see these great big seminars and people are paying $10,000 to go and do the thing and everyone's got their hands in the air and getting hyped up. And it's like, when you actually speak to Tony, he's like, he's a strategist. But yet the perception of him, if you look at like, I'm not your guru, if you've seen him on Netflix, for example, there is a lot of the hype around it. And coaches and life coaches, I kind of, sometimes just stick them all in the same bucket because of the way that they speak. They're, they're selling something. They want you to sign up to their course and their books and going all the way back to the Zig Ziglar's and the Jim Rohn's and, you know, buy my DVDs, buy my cassettes. And I saw Brendan Bouchard and I thought, oh, he's one of those guys because he started off as a life coach. He was Accenture as a management consultant in 2006 and then I heard, well, he left because he wanted to try and coach other people to be better. And in his second year, he made four and a half million. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And this is kind of in the explosion of when you've got the social web and Vaynerchuk started doing his thing with Wine Library TV. And Brendan had one of the first micro learning programs. When I started having a look at him, everything he seemed to be talking about was science-based coaching as opposed to some of the more kind of hype, motivational type stuff that you see in a lot of life coaches. There's millions of them on LinkedIn. So not only is Brendan science-based, but it's all about balance and bringing the joy. That's his little strap line. And I have no affiliation with him whatsoever, but I watched him on um, Tom Billier's Impact Theory. And I listened to him talking about passion and obsession. And I was like, I like this guy. I like the fact that he has a process that is based upon interviews with thousands and thousands, about 30,000 high performers. And that impacts the six habits that we need to bring into our own lives. And you can start looking at James Clear and Atomic Habits and all that kind of stuff, similar type of space. But the, the bit that swung it for me, he wrote something called the Motivation Manifesto before he did High Performance Habits. And he spent two and a half years not writing the book like most people would do. He spent two and a half years just researching what revolutionary language looks like. Like when somebody wanted to start a movement or a cause, you know, or you're writing the Declaration of Independence, what is the mindset of people that write revolutionary words? And he spent years and years trying to study that so that then after all that research, he could write his own book. And I thought someone that is so passionate about science and passionate about language and what makes people tick to help other people do their job better, have a positive impact in the world. Now, I like the sound of that. And I use his planner every day, you know, because it's just a great framework to set up the day that you want and then to do a 10 minute review at the end of the day to make sure, did I do the things I wanted to do? What can I do better tomorrow? So he's, he's worth checking out. He's a good guy. If you're not born a type A personality and you're not naturally inclined to kind of get out of bed at 5am and kind of 
crush it in Gary Vaynerchuk's language, which we can to come on to and to talk about. How can sort of the average folk, <laughs> the normal person, Joe Average on the street, instill some of these mindsets, behaviors, or, or habits to become a high performance person? Do you have to be born with that? Or can you create it in yourself? I think there's a few things there. We need to be really careful kind of how we have this conversation as well, because you start looking at, I mean, personally, I believe there's no such thing as normal anyway. I have ADHD, as many of you have probably figured out by now. And, you know, we talk about neurotypical, you know, but everyone's different and everyone's, you know, unique in their own way. I have identical twin girls that are wildly different. They're wired in completely different ways. And you start looking at, okay, well, first of all, like what's normal, but you've got to find the thing that works for you. And again, to, to steal some stuff from Brendan, I start looking at really, it's just, what do you want? I believe you've got two mindsets and, and both of them are right, right? So you've got, the, take the Brendan Bouchard mindset first. I want to be the best in the world at doing what I do. And you're in Michael Jordan territory of not everybody operates like that. If, if you've seen Last Dance, you see that level of obsession. He is a sketchy guy and he will manipulate and even make up scenarios to try and get himself to perform at the highest level. But you're looking at getting the best in the world to be 1% better. That's not about passion. Life coaches talk about passion, be passionate, be enthusiastic, you know, being, but passion's good. Everybody likes passion. Obsession is different. Obsession is like, Nathan, man, calm down a little bit. Kind of that, that's a bit full on, man. That sounds like you're going much. a little right. bit, a bit too much. You're going to give yourself a heart attack, man. Chill out, just take it easy. But obsession, right? Right. So when you talk about you know normal and in inverted commas, I think first of all, if you do want to be successful, you need to do things that other people are not willing to do. For the majority of people, that is going to be get up at five or six o'clock, find two hours extra of your day, become more obsessed around the passion that you have. Passion on its own isn't going to drive you where you need to go. You know, you can love something a lot. Still doesn't mean you're going to be successful. But, and here's the big caveat. It's kind of like the get out of jail free for the people that say, well, I'm not wired like that. Another one of my heroes is Yvonne Chouinard, the CEO of Patagonia. Well, he's not the CEO. Patagonia. He used to be Patagonia. The founder still owns it, right? You know, billionaire. Doesn't want to be business. He calls himself the, like the reluctant businessman, the reluctant entrepreneur. He just wants to go fishing kayaking and surfing and all the rest of it, right? But he says, look, I, I want to make a shitload of money. And the more I make, the more I can give away. And the more I give away, the more I'm going to create a business model that people want to copy. And he has this really amazing mindset. His book, you know, Let My People Go Surfing is one of the best books I've ever read. But he has a different mindset. His mindset is 80%. Don't worry about being the 90, 95th, 99th percentile. He's like, you get up to 80%, you can be good enough at the thing that you need to do. And that might be a new discipline. I'm learning a guitar at the moment. You know, you get to 80%, you can get there quite quick with a lot of joy. Once you start pushing beyond that, it starts to get painful and it starts to get hard. And sometimes the joy starts to wane a little bit because now you're into that level of obsession. And Yvonne Chouinard argues that if you want a joyful life, don't push for the level of obsession because you'd be happier just being an 80% guy that goes out fishing and rock climbing and surfing. There's also a lot to be said for that. So I, I like to, I mean, I've, I'm not sticking myself in a box, but I like to take bits of both whenever it suits. 
I generally find that my personal life is more like Yvonne Chouinard and my professional life is a lot more like Brendan Bouchard. I don't know if you've read Mastery by George, I can't remember his, his name now, but he's an Aikido teacher and he talks about the principles of Aikido and how that mirrors to life and success. Phenomenal book. But he talks about the plateau and that you will, in whatever you do, whatever you want to become really good at, you will progress and get really, really good if you practice every day. And then at some point you'll plateau and it feels as though you're not making any progress, but you are, but you have to stick with that plateau. And, you know, you use the guitar example. In the beginning, you'll feel as though you're improving a lot, but then you'll get to a point where I'm like, I'm not getting any better at this. Why am I sticking with it? Stick with it. Because at some point you'll jump and then you'll have another another plateau. And he says it's important for you to love the plateau. Most people give up in the in the plateau, but it's important to love that period. And I feel as though that's kind of what you were saying with, you know, the obsession. I had breakfast a while ago with the the founder of Twitter, one of the founders. I mean, he wasn't really, but he kind of was written as a founder afterwards, Biz Stone. And, and he talks about it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. And I, I liked that because I thought it was just a really cute phrase, but there's a lot of truth behind that. You know, there's a lot of depth to it, but there's actually a law in economics. It's called Dornbush's law. I heard this from Al Gore, some of the climate work I do outside of IBM and, and Rudy Dornbush, you know, and he's like, you know, Kruger studied underneath him and won a Nobel Prize for economics. And, and Dornbush's law basically says things always take longer to happen than you think they will, but then they happen faster than you ever thought they could. So it's like nothing, 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 bang, 10 years to be an overnight success. It's like, no, I've 10,000 hours. I've been doing my thing, right, for a long time and felt like I've not. It's like the law of hockey sticks. And you need that vision. You know, again, it's a high performance thing to know that I believe that this is going somewhere and at some point this is going to pay off and that law might apply to me. Not always. Seth Godin talks about the dip. Sometimes you need to know, look, it's not working out. You need to get out. Now's your time to leave. But if you believe that the dip is about to turn and then it's going to go up so you do get the explosive growth, the big success, what happens in the dip is often what differentiates the best entrepreneurs and the best high performers with the people who are just, ah, gave it my best shot, didn't work out. Dabbling. Yeah. The difference between the amateur and the professional. They went for 90 days. Well, if you would have gone for 100 days, you would have made it. You gave up 10 days too early. Love that. Absolutely love that. What do they say? They say um, culture happens very slowly and then all at once. Very similar. Mm. Very similar to what you just said there. Yeah, really Absolutely is. love that. So I have to. we have to talk about the, the giraffe. You spent some time, I'm, I'm going way off topic now, but we mentioned in the beginning of the, of, the, of the podcast, you spent some time as a giraffe keeper. Tell us about that. We, I can't let you go without talking about that. Well, I mentioned, I mean, we've all got our stories to tell, right? I mean, there's any one of your listeners would have an amazing story to, to tell on this show. It's just part of my story involved bankruptcy and trying to dust myself down, figure out what's next. I had the opportunity to go and work with um, some giraffes in Dalton, in Furness, book in the Lake District, South Lakes Animal Park, as it was called at the time, a reticulated giraffe called Etong, going and climbing trees and willow branches and stripping them down to um to to feed her and learning about giraffes and stuff and cleaning them it was just the most fun thing in the world doesn't pay well at all but, <laughs> but it's just it's just the best thing ever but just trying to dust yourself down to figure out well what's next 
and you know as part of that i met all sorts of fantastic business people um a couple of uh, female entrepreneurs in wales that were just the most colorful characters i ever met big into spirituality and buddhism and showed me things like the secret and the law of attraction went to live on a farm for a couple of years met my wife in the middle of all of that time but just trying to take yourself out of somewhere else now i was forced to do that because i was just in survival mode but I know some people that will go and purposely do this every five to seven years. And then having that view of the world to then come back with like, oh, okay, this is act two. This is now the new thing that I'm going to do. And now I'm, so I've got clarity, I've got energy. I know why this has happened. Um, You're also trying to keep yourself sane. But then that creates your own story that hopefully you can help to inspire someone else that's going through some, you know, shit further down the line. So it was, yeah, it absolutely shaped me. Um, I do miss the farm <laughs> and all the greenery, being able to snowboard through the fields into town to go and get some supplies. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah we need to do that. You know, we need to go out. We need to stare at clouds and take time out of the office in between jobs, take sabbaticals. If you can go and travel the world, go to Patagonia, you know, go and climb a mountain go and do the things that are going to unlock a different part of your brain, especially if you feel like your career might be stagnating a little bit or you feel like, you know, well, I know that this is what I really wanted to do when I was growing up, but my role has evolved into this. I'm not quite bouncing out of bed every, anymore that I sure. used to. So, you know, go and take some time for yourself and figure out what's next. I kind of feel that you're a combination between Gary V. Tim Ferriss and <laughs> Seth Godin. And those people, if, if they're, they're in a room together, I'm sure there'll be fights and, 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 you know, they wouldn't get on. I'm sure they'll agree on some things, but probably not a lot of other things. But you keep those three people in mind and your cognitive dissonance doesn't really work with you because there should be a contradiction between those three people. How do you square that circle and how do you... How do you think about those those three influences? Well, I mean, all three of those guys have massively inspired me at different parts of my career. I'm pretty sure they would fight, but fight gracefully. You know, they're very big brains with strong opinions and personalities. It's why each of them are amazing in their own right. But they do have different worldviews. You know, I'm looking at, I love Ferris and his, um, you you mentioned stoicism when we chatted originally. And you look at the four-hour work week and working smart, tools of titans, the books and um, that Ferris has written about trying to understand why the best people in the world do that what they do. I love that. His podcast is fantastic, right? Mm. Um, I, my introduction to marketing was as much through Gary Vaynerchuk as it was through any type of studying and then trying to learn everything I could from people like Scott Galloway and Mark Ritson and some of the best marketing professors out there. And Seth, you know, my favorite author, I absolutely love him to death. He says, Everybody should write a book. Not everybody should publish one, but everybody should write one. <laughs> right. Because the act of writing, the process helps you make sense of your own thoughts. It's like I'm, you know, if you can see it, but I'm sat behind a couple of pictures of Marilyn Monroe writing. I love Marilyn. She used to say, I think in ink. You know, my, my, one of my political heroes, Ted Sorensen, that I mentioned, JFK's speechwriter, he said, um, you know, I think with my pen. And Seth is a lot like that. You know, he talks about, you know, we need to think things through with, with our pens. So we're all this patchwork quilt of the people that have inspired us, haven't we? I don't subscribe to the hustle mindset. And I think four-hour work week can be taken out of context. But, you know, it's like anything. 
you surround yourself with brilliant people. You might be thinking, well, 50% of what they say, I might not agree with at all, but this book, I'm going to get something really powerful out of it. And I see that on LinkedIn all the time. And this is, I'm oversharing now a little tiny bit, but I see books all the time and I look at someone and say, oh, she's so self-promotional. She's trying to do the thing. It's all for, and then I kind of stop myself and like, I'm going to buy the book because I guarantee there'll be something in that book that I can learn from. And true enough, you know, a lot of it might not be my thing. It's aimed at a different audience, but there'll be a quote or a start or a mindset or a process that I get introduced to that I've never seen before. So I just devour books and learn to speed read from the most random people. I'd study ballet and then I'm going to study quantum physics. You know, I want to understand speech writing. Then I want to be over here seeing like how the Muppets was made <laughs> and then figuring out how do I apply that into the business world? Love that. With the art and science to help people communicate better. It's back to story, isn't it? T-shaped. Range, David Epstein. Did we used to call it pie shaped? I can't, you know, the pie symbol. And there's there's another phrase now. What what are you calling me? Uh, I know I've put on some weight recently, but. Yeah, we're going to be good at a few things. Now we are the multi hyphenates. Yeah, we've got a lot going on that we need to have now. You, You want to go deep on one thing, but you need to be dangerous at a few. Final question before we get into our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. What have you learned about communications and storytelling specifically that when you started at Phones for You back in the day, you were no good at at all? And what have been the biggest lessons and growth areas for you personally over that period of time? I think it was more an awareness. I mean, I, without sounding arrogant, I think I was good at it back in early on. I just didn't know why and I didn't understand it. And the thing about storytelling is really easy. I I hear these phrases like, oh, it's not rocket science. It's much harder. Or storytelling is really easy when you don't understand it. But when you do, when you see what's involved, it's really, really difficult. And it is. There's a huge complexity to the way that stories are structured and speeches are made. But it boils down to the most simple idea in the world. You just want to make somebody feel something. That's all it is. A story is generally just a hero's journey where someone's transformed for the better, hopefully for the better, sometimes for the worse. But that transformation is the story itself. And without transformation, it's not a story. It's just a list of stuff that happened. But as you listen to whatever that story might be, whether it's in business, whether it's in Netflix, whether it's a book or a song, it's something that makes somebody feel something. That's it and that's what all throughout my career that's the thing i've been searching for how do we do things that make someone feel something where i've got better in recent years is in the commercial world just making people feel something isn't enough marketers are really good at that but how many times have you seen amazing campaigns when you see the video shared tens of millions of times it's like oh it felt incredible yeah but what did it do It's like a great speech. The judge of a great speech is not the words. It's going to be, yeah, what did people do afterwards? Sure. Vote. Did they use their voice? Did they change their choices? Did they buy your stuff? You know, so so the essence of commercial storytelling for me is just make people feel something so that they do something. That's it. You're talking about creative effectiveness. And by the way, that's the essence of all salesmanship at a really high level, right? It's a transfer of emotion from one person to to another. Um, but then, as you say, getting them to do something with that with that emotion. And there's a responsibility with that as well. I mean, the ancient Greeks and Aristotle spoke about this a lot, rhetoric. It's that influence, the art of persuasion. 
Dan Pink has written a whole bunch of books about it. The responsibility of when your language and your words can persuade people to do things. And the very definition of influence is slightly sketchy when you actually think about it. You think about the dictionary definition of influence, forcing people to do things that they wouldn't have normally done. So we're getting people to do things. But language can do that. And that's why rhetoric, certainly in the political world, has got such a bad reputation. But I like, there's a speechwriter for Joe Biden. I don't care what, whatever you think of Joe Biden's irrelevant. It's called Vinay Reddy. Uh, and Vinay Reddy, brilliant Indian speechwriter, um, has been with Biden for a long time. He talks about rhetoric for good. And it's like, we only want to use language to have a positive impact and using words that have a good impact as opposed to being able to manipulate and persuade and do some sketchier things, which is, there's been many examples of that in the past. And I think that's the responsibility that we have as communicators and storytellers to use language for good, you know, and to use rhetoric with all of its devices and all of the clever tricks that it can do to make people feel something so that good things happen. Absolutely love it. Jeremy, let's jump into our favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. I've not been able to ask you all the questions I wanted to ask in the main part of the interview. We're going to have to get you back on the show. But this, these are the questions to find out more about you, the person behind the brand. So first one, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, I've talked about bankruptcy. I should probably think of another example, shouldn't I? I was once with... Um, I don't know if we're allowed to name names. I'm going to name them anyway. I was with Hugo Boss. Name dropping. And I was doing a big presentation that needed to impress them to get a lot of money to run a huge social media campaign. And I had, there was one stat on like page four of my presentation that I didn't know. And um, they drilled me on it, you know. German engineers, like what, what's the methodology behind that? I tried to wing it, Ugh. shouldn't have done it. I didn't know it. No. And they didn't believe anything else that I said. No. That was it. Not with Germans. And it was like, and I never again went into a presentation without knowing every number and where it came from and why. But that was an epic failure because there was a deal that was lost. Painful. Exactly. But we learned from them. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Um, who influenced the way that you think about marketing, communications, storytelling, my mentors are, um, are not necessarily business people. You know, I mean, we mentioned Aaron Sorkin. I love J.K. Rowling, love Neil Gaiman. You know, I love uh, really great writers. Ernest Hemingway, you know, my mentors, I kind of look back and it sounds, it's sometimes, forgive me for the strange analogy, but there's a scene in Goodwill Hunting when the Robin Williams character is asking, you know, the Matt Damon, well, it's like, well, who are your friends? And he names off, you know, Nietzsche and Shakespeare and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, they're all dead. He's like, no, not to me, they're not. Yeah, love that. And I often treat my mentors, I look at books of like, well, I'm Dale Carnegie's mentoring me, you know, or, or someone that died, you know, a long, long time ago. Yeah. And they live on through their books. And you constantly have a conversation with them back and forth, right? Because you're different when you pick up the book again next year or the year after. You've changed. So then the way that you interpret what you've, they've yeah, said. Yeah, absolutely. And you give yourself permission to be mentored by somebody like that. And there's, there's a little bit of swagger there as well. It's like, yeah, come on, this is cool. Yeah. And then, it, you know, so it might be a private thing. You don't have to tell anybody. But yeah, I'm being mentored by Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> you say that out loud too much and people will be like, shut up. <laughs> you know, you're a bit of a dick. Don't do that. But privately, I'm like, no, absolutely. Big ideas, small words and short sentences. I want to talk about you know, adventure and courage and grace. Yeah, I love it. 
Okay, you mentioned books. Tell us some of your favorite ones. This is our listeners' favorite question, by the way, and my personally favorite question. What do you read for personal, professional development? What books do you go back to time and time again? Give us some of your favorites. There's, um, well, I'm mentioning a bunch of writers. So, I mean, those would be the obvious ones, thinking about Hemingway and people like that. There's a book I've got on my desk at the moment, actually, and it is Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which was written in 1936. There's there's so many incredible books, and I, I read one or two books a week. But even though actually looking back at How to Win Friends and Influence People, it can come across like it's not politically correct at all because of the time it was written in. But it's still one of the best business books that's ever been written about, you know, how to show up as your true self, how to be authentic, how to have tons of empathy. And I really like the mindset of Carnegie. I love people like Zig Ziglar, you know, and some of those sales trainers. And you often find that they're rooted in the church or they're rooted, you know, somewhere else. They've got a faith or a spiritual belief system that drives what they do. And I've always loved that. So anyone that's got something to say about why people believe what they believe in whatever corner of the world that is, that's usually the type of stuff that I'm going to pick up. I love people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, and then, you know, anything to do with Disney. If it's got a Disney logo on it, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> love Walt Disney. Who is it that said um, you can have anything you want in the world as long as you're able to give any? Oh, Zig Ziglar. You, want. you can have everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. There you go. Yeah, great sales trainer. Again, a, a pastor from, um, but one of the big sales trainers of the 1990s, 80s and 90s. Yeah, he's a Zig Ziglar's fantastic. What do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Ride my bike and play guitar. Um, physically fit, maybe keep my brain active. I cycle a lot. I, you know, I, I cycle maybe 40K every day. Wow, every day? Yeah, I'm going to go and do 50 after this. I live right next wow. to Richmond Park, so I'm in a beautiful part of London. I've got a really nice road bike. No excuses. 50K sounds a lot. On a road bike, it's not. It's like, you know, it's less than two hours. Okay. But... I, I work American hours. I've crafted a job that just works really well with work-life balance. And I do all of my thinking on my bike. And if I'm going to write a speech or something, generally I get hit by inspiration riding around Richmond Park trying to dodge squirrels and deer. <laughs> Amazon Prime, Netflix, Disney Plus, Hulu. What are you watching or streaming at the moment that's good? Um... Well, I've gone back to, it's funny. I mean, I was looking at a lot of the new shows. Queen's Gambit's one of the best things I've seen in the last few years, but I'm actually re-watching The West Wing. And with my missus, I'm watching Nashville. I'm a big sucker for Western and country music. And um, very cheesy, massive guilty pleasure. But I love <laughs> Netflix and Disney Plus when it looks behind the scenes. So I'll watch documentary, Ed Sheeran, when it's songwriter, I love Taylor Swift when she looks behind the scenes on what it is she does. 321 with Paul McCartney on Disney Plus. Get Back was just genius. Peter Jackson's Get Back on the Beatles. Just eight hours of the creative process from the Beatles. That's one of the best things I've seen for a while. Some good recommendations there. I try not to get too sucked in, to be honest, because I love books and I love trying to keep my brain in a good place. Mm. And sometimes I'll just spend too much time binge watching stuff that... Um, yeah, you can go down some dark holes pretty quick and I'll just get lost for days. That's my addictive personality. So I'm, I try and manage things reasonably well. So there's enough fun, but also I'm learning some cool things along the way. 
What's the last book that you read that had the most profound impact on you? New book. So not going back to 1937, but um, somewhere in the last two or three years. Uh, probably Book of Hope by Jane Goodall. I'm looking at the, the last three, the last few books I read. Writers, here's a few for your, for your listeners. I'm just going to look over at my, uh, my bookshelf. Writer's Journey by Christopher Vogler. He's the guy that Disney goes to to check scripts are any good before they go out. Amazing. So he looks at flaws in the hero's journey. So he's like the Disney's guy, the top guy for Disney. Jane Goodall, The Book of Hope, is just amazing because Jane Goodall is just one of the best humans on the planet. Um, Storyteller by Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters was fantastic. And um, I'm about to read Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. I keep getting told that it's brilliant. And now he's chief storyteller for Salesforce. I thought yeah, I'd take a little bit more time looking. Yeah. Love that. Great recommendations. Thank you for sharing. Um, last couple of questions and I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who wants to start their career in a global technology firm or in storytelling? Uh, well, there's no rules anymore, are there? I would never look back and say, what if? And I would never go back because everything happens for a reason, right? I'm where I am because of the things that had happened. And of course, I could have, you know, well, should I have wasted 10 years building this business that was going to go bankrupt? Well, no, that shapes you to go and do the thing. But if there's one mistake I made at the very beginning of my career, it was chasing a job title. And I wanted to be a creative director in my dad's printing company. What I should have done looking back, was forget about the job title. Nobody cares. I just wanted it on the business card because it was like, a, you know, entrepreneur, a bit of ego, a little bit of swagger. Right. I should have just gone to one of the best agencies or the best companies that I would have wanted, which might have been a, a big TBWA. It could have been Saatchi. It could have been, you know, Disney. Um, and just say, look, I'll make the tea. <laughs> I'll make the negatives. I'll do, I'll be a runner. I'll do absolutely whatever you want on the smallest possible salary yeah. and I don't care. Literally, I will do anything to get in instead of like, no, I've you know got these aspirations to be a, a, a business person. So I wanted the title and the status and I shouldn't have done that at all. I don't know that that's, that drives as many people these days, but we do chase job titles a little bit too much. And it's like, no, pick the company, don't pick the job. You know, and and be obsessive about finding a way to get in that company to understand how it ticks. And, you know, think about agency land. One of the things that I'm quite proud of is that I've been on both sides of the fence. I've worked brand side, I've worked tech side, I've worked agency side. Do you know what I mean? I've worked with the big brands and then I've been over here working with the technology firms. So whoever I'm speaking to, it's, I've got a, at least a level of empathy that I can put myself in their shoes. So the way that we kind of slingshot our careers that are squiggly, you know, keep mixing it up. You know, you don't have to follow that straight career trajectory. And instead of putting yourself in a box with academia and maybe a certain qualification, I've probably learned more from masterclass.com than I've ever learned through business schools hmm. and through school school. So, yeah, so just find your own way and just figure out, you know, get some good mentors, alive or dead. <laughs> and start shaping your life around them. I used to have this little, funny little Venn diagram of the people that I most wanted to be a little bit like, you know, and I want you know, his personality and his swagger. They would just take all the creativity of that person, but I want the language of that one. And Love that. it's like, you see that little hybrid and it's like, that's who I want to be, right? How do I get that? 
And you can do that by, you know, as you say, reading their work, watching their content, reading their, you know, watching their videos. Still like an artist, Austin Kleon has a great book on that. Austin Kleon is amazing. It. Isn't he phenomenal? Yeah. Isn't he amazing? I love him a lot. He says, really, what you want to do is steal the way that your mentors think. You don't want to steal what they say, mm -hmm. but you want to steal how they think and put yourself in their shoes. And I just exactly. Think There's a book you can get on Amazon for about 10 quid, Aikigai. It's pronounced Ikigai in Japan, but I-K-I-G-A-I. Anyone that Googles an image will know exactly what we're talking about. But that, whether you're at the beginning of your career or trying to reinvent yourself at 50 years old, you find out your Aikigai that can start to merge your personal life and your professional life. What am I good at? What does the world need? What do I get paid for? What do I love? All of that should be the same thing. And then work stops feeling like work. You are literally bouncing out of bed on a Monday morning because you can't wait to do the thing that you were put here to do. And not many of us have that because we don't spend enough time to chase it or to figure out what that is. And we just assume, well, my personal life's over here, my professional life's over there. And, and now with the pandemic and working from home and all the rules have changed, we, we should be doing that now more than ever. Do it on your terms. Don't let some corporate or some boss tell, you know, this is the box you need to fit in. No, you don't. Go somewhere else. Go somewhere that believes that stuff, yeah. And my final question, Jeremy, what is it you know about the art of communications today that you wish you knew right at the beginning of your career? I just wish I spent more time studying language. Uh, and still now, it's probably the biggest weakness that I have. I don't read enough fiction, you know, don't read enough for fun. And and just study, like, why why great communicators and great storytellers are as good as they are, you know. And if, if you're obsessed with music, start trying to take songs to pieces and understand why are they good. If you're obsessed with movies, you can download the script, the screenplay of any movie for free as a PDF online. Whatever your favorite movie is, watch it with the script, with the screenplay, and you start to see why the story is structured in the way that it is. I just wish I did that a bit earlier in my career. Mm. But things like that, it's like, it's not that hard. I mean, of course it is. It's very, very hard. But <laughs> once you start lifting the lid, right, or you're pulling the curtain back and you can see the wizard with all the wires and you're like, oh, you're like, that's oh, not actually that hard. Okay. <laughs> I could I could do that. I could steal some of his ideas. Yeah. And and I could structure my next PowerPoint presentation in the style of the way that, you know, Dave Grohl wrote that song or Taylor Swift did that, you know, you steal from the best places that are fun. Steal like an artist. Exactly. Jeremy, thank you so much for doing this. You are welcome. This was fun. We bounced around a lot. And now uh, we covered some ground. I hope this was useful and interesting for everybody. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for having me on. We have been speaking with Jeremy Connell-Waite. He is currently the global communications designer at IBM. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 160 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in the fields of sales, marketing, communications, and media. Head over to agencydealmasters.com and sign up to our weekly newsletter for exclusive subscriber-only content not shared on the main feed. Follow us on LinkedIn and send me a message there if you want to get in touch. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Tyler Baller is our booker. Christoph Boaszczek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Alibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. You are listening to Agency Dealmasters, brought to you by Bridge.
the Growth Focus Podcast Agency.